All right, good morning, my friends. Let's uh, flip over to Galatians. We'll continue through the letter. Paul writing there to the churches there in the area. If you remember the first, just by introduction, the first about chapter and a half is Paul writing to the Galatians and essentially reaffirming his uh, stature as an apostle. And not just to flex on them or to force them, but to, as he has said many times, to, to bring them joy. And as we've talked about, remember that through, throughout really Paul's ministry and his life, and to an extent Peter and some of these other guys, uh, wherever they went and preached the gospel and, and churches started and, and rose up, there would be people that followed after, and uh, typically known as Judaizers. And so remember when Romans and 1st and 2nd Corinthians, there's this thing that continues to plague the church where essentially it's the Jesus plus something gospel. So in this case and in this day and age, it was, uh, for them it was Jesus plus certain aspects of the law. So people would begin to come in, they begin to say, hey, yes, the sacrifice of Jesus is important and believing in Jesus is important, but you also need to be circumcised, follow the dietary laws, and the Sabbath, keep the Sabbath, right? Then there's other ones too, but those are kind of the, the main ones, and, and, and circumcision seems to be the one that he's really addressing here. It's really irrelevant which parts of the law it is and it isn't. The whole point is that people were looking to other things outside of what Jesus did at the cross for, for forgiveness. So there's a few words that are going to get used a lot here. Uh, last week, we, well, let me say this first. Last week, we kind of looked at the same passage, but we looked at kind of who Peter is, uh, where Antioch is, and who Barnabas is. Because if you remember, what happens is, Peter, who had had the vision, remember, uh, Peter has a vision there in Acts 10 where he's super hungry and he kind of phases out for a minute and God uh, essentially lowers a sheet down in front of him and it's got all these unclean animals, right? Because there was, there, you, you guys, we use the word kosher, right? Is that kosher? Uh, well, it's, that's slang uh, in a sense. Kosher means is it applied to the Jewish uh, eating laws. That's what kosher is. Kosher literally is does that meal fit to Jewish eating laws? So the, the sheet comes down and it opens up and God says, hey, kill and eat Peter. And it's all the unclean animals, uh, pigs and whatnot. Kill and eat. And Peter's response is fascinating because he's, he's been a Christian now for like 10 years or so. And, and Peter says, never, Lord, because unclean food has never come into my mouth. So that's an interesting answer, right? It, and, 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 and the vision happens again, and the Lord says, don't call unclean what I've called clean. And it's both a reference to those animals, but also Gentiles. Remember we talked last week, and this is kind of a common theme in the Bible. According to Jews, there are Jews, and then there's everyone else, which would be Gentiles, right? And uh, we, I don't want to all rehash all of last Sunday, but there is just some, some basis to go over. So... What, uh, essentially, what happens is James or the church there at Jerusalem sends some people to Peter in Antioch, or they're in Antioch. And they arrive, and because they were people from the circumcision party, I'm not sure that's a party you want to belong to, but if you're part of the circumcision party, he said that they essentially were bringing this legalism, this, this Judaizing to Peter. And it says, because Peter feared the people that came, that he started to retract from Gentiles. 
And we talked a lot about last week that there's, there actually is no law in Levitical law or in, the, in Deuteronomy or anywhere in the Scripture that says that a Jew can't eat with a Gentile. And it was, that was born out of, during the Hellenistic period, out of most likely the, Pharise the Pharisees that kind of rose up to kind of combat uh, the sensual Greek culture from infiltrating the Jewish youth. And so they, they started making more rules and they weren't from the law in, in themselves. So anyway, so Peter begins to withdraw from Gentiles. He doesn't eat with them. He doesn't hang out with them. And that causes a bunch of the other Jews that are there in Antioch, which is mostly a Gentile church, to also pull away and not eat with the Gentiles. And then ultimately that causes Barnabas to do the same thing. So last week we just talked about who are these people and how did they get to a point where they were willing to separate themselves from other Christians and, and try to cite the, that this was God's will. Well, Peter, we know him. He's an apostle. Uh, he obviously was a guy who... Uh, was kind of out there, kind of an alpha personality, right? Uh, and we looked at some of the crazy things that went on, or the, you know, the kind of the contradictions where, you know, for example, where Peter says, Jesus says, who do you say, or people say that I am? And they kind of go through it, and then Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, and Jesus says, oh, you didn't figure out that on your own, in your flesh. My Father showed that to you. And then Jesus says, I'm going to die and rise again. And Peter grabs him and says, no, Lord. This will never happen to you. You have Peter walking on water and then sinking. You have, you said, Peter's just, he's a, he's a go-getter. I mean, dude gets after it, right? Even on the boat, when they're going back to the beach, then they see Jesus from the boat there after his resurrection. And John's like, hey, it's Jesus. Peter literally like throws his clothes off, dives in the water and tries to beat the boat back to the beach. And from the text loses, which is kind of funny. But you have this, you know, this is who he is. But yet, because of fear of someone's opinion or fear of a, uh, the, the, the opinion of people from a church, certain church, he retracts. So then that influences others. The other Jews are like, well, if Peter's, I mean, ooh, if the apostle Peter's not eating with Gentiles, we should probably do the same, shouldn't we? And it's, it's amazing sometimes our, fear of in, our, our sphere of influence on people. And so then they begin to retract, and it says it got so bad that even Barnabas, well, who was Barnabas? Barnabas is the dude that Jerusalem sent to Antioch when they heard that all these Greeks and, and, and Gentiles were getting saved. His real name is Joseph. He's from Cyprus. He's, from, uh, he's a Levite. So he, he's, he's a, uh, uh, from the, the priesthood, the, the tribe of the priests. And, he, and his real name is Joseph. They nickname him Barnabas. The apostles do, which means the son of encouragement. So Barnabas is literally the guy who shows up to Antioch to help them kind of form a church. Right? When you have a bunch of uh, you know, polytheistic, <laughs> sexually worshiping heathens that get saved, church is probably a little dysfunctional after that. So they send Barnabas to come and to help with there. And he's just, he's just excited to be there. It says he observed the grace of God among them. And he just, he just sees God working in all these people. So it's that guy that, that eventually ends up kind of retracting also and no longer eating with the Jews or excuse me, no longer eating with the Gentiles. So you could see how this would be a big problem, right? You could see how this would be a, a huge issue in the church where you have people that are unwilling to hang out with and eat with other people based on their race or their situation in life, right? That's essentially what you have. So Paul shows up, and, uh, or at least he, he eventually sees Peter, 
And he, in, in public, calls him out and says, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? This is not something that God would have us do. Now, he did that, and part of it was, it's kind of a two-pronged thing. Number one, he's using that to demonstrate to these churches uh, in, in kind of southern Greece would be the area it is now today. He's, he's using that to write to them to say, my apostleship is valid. You can know that because I withstood Peter to the face, and he took it, basically. He took what I had to say, and, and, and he received it. And he's also using the same argument to show his apostleship, to show the main point of why he's writing to this region, which is we cannot go to the law for righteousness. Now, every pastor, right, we're all weird, and we all have a shtick. Have you ever noticed that? You go to a church long enough, and pretty soon you're like, I know this dude's shtick. This guy's shtick is the rapture, or this guy's shtick is Israel, or this guy's shtick is knowing Hebrew, or this guy's shtick, right? Every pastor has a shtick. This is my shtick right here. It's righteousness by grace through faith and faith alone. And the reason it's my shtick, I think in big part, was because I did go to a church when I got saved for about 11 years that really kind of preached this idea that, yeah, 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 you get saved by receiving Jesus, but after that, you work your tail off, and if you don't, then you're kind of unfaithful. And, and if you're unfaithful, and then they had all sorts of weird conclusions that we're not going to even take time to acknowledge. But needless to say, they're, the same conclusions are alive and out in the world today. And this is what it kind of comes down to. We begin to think and to express that there's no way that Jesus is enough. Right? And you go, wow, you've been talking about this a lot lately. You're right, because in virtually every single epistle that Paul writes, he talks about this. He lays in 16 chapters of it out in Romans. And then he talks about it, we're in Galatians. He talks about it in 1st and 2nd Corinthians. He talks about it in Colossians. He talks about it in Ephesians. Every time Paul, almost every single time, some of the personal letters, he doesn't emphasize it so much, whether it's to Timothy or Titus or Jude, you know, something like that. But every single letter that he writes to a church, this is the major portion that he talks about. That we cannot look to anything save the blood of Jesus as the source of our righteousness. Now, there's a couple words I want to define because we're about to get deep in them here. Number one is righteousness. What is righteousness? You know, depending on your background, your religious background, whatever it might be, righteousness can have a different connotation. Sometimes, and for me, I used to think when anybody said righteousness, for whatever reason, I thought of uh, self-righteousness. Right. So if you say that person is self-righteous, what we're saying is, by definition, that person thinks a lot about themselves, right? When we say someone is a self-righteous person, they're usually, we, we want to say like they're stuffy, they condemn others, right? They're not really a great person to be around. You don't usually like spending time with them. But that's not the idea of what righteousness is. Righteousness literally is being right with God. When we're talking about righteousness before God, that's, that's all it is. It's just, it's just a word that means that you or an individual possesses a right standing. By right standing, we mean no negative connotation in their standing, no negativity, no uh, uncertainness, right, in their standing before God. That's what righteousness is. The second word is, is justified, because he's going to use that three or four times here today. But what does justified mean in a, in a biblical sense? Justified simply means that in a judicial or in a court way, right? So if you go to court, our judiciary system, if you were to go to court or stand before a judge or something like that, and let's say you were accused of something, you know, you were doing, I don't know, 150 miles an hour in a 35. And so they say, you 
are accused of this. But then, in a wild twist of events, I don't know, they illegally use radar or whatever, and they say, oh, this is thrown out. You're no longer accused of this. And, and, and you know, because we have double jeopardy laws in our country, you cannot be accused of this again. And so you are, your case is dismissed, you are justified. Does that make sense? So justified is the idea that I am judicially, I am in a court, I'm in a very real sense, I don't really know how to describe it. It is the recognized position of God that I am right with him. Does that make sense? That's what it means to be justified. So righteousness is to be right with God and to, to be on good terms with him with no negative connotation to it. And justification is that I am, I've been tried and acquitted of this particular sin. Does that make sense? Or this particular issue in my life. So these are the words that are important for us to define as we jump into this today. And we're going to start in verse 11 again. This is Galatians chapter 2 and verse 11. Um, and I know we read this last week, uh, but just for context's sake, we'll read it again this week. When Cephas, remember Cephas is Aramaic for Peter, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from Gentiles, because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a, excuse me, know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life that I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. So these are pretty substantial words. These are pretty substantial ideas or doctrines. The word doctrine just basically means tenets of what we believe. So doctrine is not really a dry thing. It's just talking about what we believe. And so the statements here, I think, are oftentimes, and myself included, they're misunderstood or they can seem so out there or conceptual that I don't really understand how, I, how do I bring that into my life. Like, for example, when it tells me that, I, that through the law, I died to the law, what does that mean? When it tells me that I've died with Christ and I'm raised with him, and so now the life that I live now, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, what does that mean? What does that mean when I leave here today after my tasty hors d'oeuvre lunch and I go out into this world and I have to experience it? 
How do I walk out of the door and be dead to myself and alive to Christ? How do I walk out of the door and know that I'm dead to the law because I was slain by the law, right? So there are things that I think a lot of times in our Christianity we look at and we're like, yeah, 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 the Bible says that, I'm in. But when it comes down to what does this really mean for me, that's where I think where we can struggle. Now it's important here because Paul says, he, he makes this, this accusation against Peter. He says, we who are Jews and are seeking to be justified by Christ and not by the law, why are you trying to make Gentiles follow Jewish customs? Now there again, it's a, he calls it a custom, right? And, and so a custom is something that you just regularly do. So for example, my mom buys my daughters every year Christmas pajamas. And every year on Christmas Eve, she, they get their Christmas pajamas. And I guess they put them on. I don't know. Christmas Eve is always a blur because we have a service, so I don't really remember. But I do know that every year the package comes and they, they get them, right? There's no law about that. If I were to call, you know, if they didn't come one year, I wouldn't call my mom and be like, where are the Christmas PJs? You have violated us by not showing us the Christmas. No, it's a, it's a custom. It's just something she does every year, right? So it's important to note that there's no custom. There's, excuse me, there's no law anywhere in Jewish history from the, from, from the Torah, anyway, that says that Jews can't eat with Gentiles. That was never a law. Uh, in fact, Jews could eat with Gentiles. They just couldn't eat with certain foods that Gentiles ate. Gentiles were absolutely welcome in Jerusalem and in, 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 in any place where the Jews lived, in their camp, if we put it that way. They were allowed to be part of some of the, the rites and the customs. They were allowed to assimilate and to worship God and all these different things. So this idea that, that, that Peter was somehow acting in any like, lawful form from Judaism is not true. That was manifested, like I said, during the Hellenistic period, like 350 to, to, to 20 BC. That's when that kind of stuff started coming out, really from when, as the Pharisees are formed. So what, they're, what he's accusing Peter of is not even law. But he's making the point and he's saying, look, us Jews... No longer, we're not seeking to be justified by the law, are we? We're seeking to be justified by Jesus Christ. So why are you trying to pretend that Gentiles should be following our customs in order to, be, to, 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 uh, to find justification, to, be, to find being right with God? And he, said, he, he puts it this way. He says, verse 15, we who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles. Now, maybe that kind of gets the, you know, the hackles up on your Gentile neck, like, what is, who does this guy think he is? Well, this is Paul using irony. It, it, essentially, like, do you remember in, like, for example, in 2 Corinthians, where he writes to the Corinthians, and he says, please forgive me this wrong. Please forgive me for not taking money from you. Do you remember that? So he's just, it's just ironic speak, right? He's making a point in saying that. Please forgive me for not ripping you off. That's, that, the point that he's making there is, I'm sorry I wronged you. I, I didn't actually wrong you. You're making this stuff up, right? So what he's doing here, what did Peter do? Peter retracted from the, from the Gentiles because the Gentiles were looked at by Jews as kind of extra sinful, right? Never mind the fact that their Judaism that they were practicing at that point as a, as a system, not the individuals, but as a system, was completely devoid of anything of God's will, really, other than, other than the skeleton. You can see that in the fact that Jesus clears out the temple twice. But, uh, so he's, he's making a reference to Peter saying, we Jews, unlike those sinful Gentiles, 
when Peter's actually the offender. Does that make sense? So he's not literally saying like, yes, I believe that Gentiles are worse. He's just, he's just using an ironic speech because he's addressing Peter's fault, his sin. So he says, we who are Jews by birth and not, and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So he says, we know this. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, now just think about that for a second. I don't know if you're an underliner or a highlighter or whatever, but think about it. No one, no person has been in any dispensation, it doesn't matter if it's Adam, Cain, Abraham, Jacob, right? It doesn't matter if it's Moses, all the judges, the judges that were raised up during the law, doesn't matter if it's pre-Christ, post-Christ, no person has ever been made right with God, has, ne- has been judicially cleared of their sin by God because of the law. Super important. Because there's, there's, there's part of us, many of us, I can't speak for everyone, that we come to a conclusion and we just go, it, this can't actually be. There can't, I can't actually be justified before God simply by what Jesus did. There has to be something else that I and others do to sustain that justification. Whether it's a certain level of faith I have to attain to all the time, whether it's a good devotional life or church attendance or whatever it might be, there's just something inside we go, there's there's just no way. And And if we don't do that to ourselves, we often do it to others. There's no way that person could actually be saved. Do you know what they're like? Do you know what they did last week? Do you know their past? Do you know, do you know how they speak? Do you know, there's just no way because they're not manifesting what I think they should do or even what the Bible says they should do. So there's just no way that that person could be saved. They're not maintaining their salvation correctly. So I want to ask, if the law doesn't make a person righteous, which that's what it says. Can we agree with that? That's what it says. If the law doesn't make a person righteous, why is the law there? Why did the law come in? What is it for? If it's not for me to follow, if I'm not supposed to wake up and like, you know, kiss and high-five the Ten Commandments on my way out the door every morning, then why is the law there? It's really clear. Paul lays this out. This is such a blessing. If you don't mind, we're going to take a little bit of a journey through Romans. Not too much, because then we'd just be preaching Romans, but... In Romans chapter 5... Paul answers this question. Romans chapter 5 is, 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 if you're interested, it's essentially the doctrine of federal headship. So you can impress everyone at Friday Night Fellowship. Federal headship is simply the idea that you and I, that every single human being on the planet was condemned in Adam because of sin. And so every human being born from the lineage of Adam, which would be all of us, is condemned because of sin. But... Through the, through the sacrifice of one, Jesus, everybody can be made righteous. Everybody who would, who would like it. So it says there in verse 18, 518, it says, Consequently, just as one trespass from Adam resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous, uh, one act, excuse me, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. 
For just as through the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many were made righteous. Verse 20, the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. <laughs> that seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? God gave the law so that it would make more sin. You go, that doesn't seem right. That doesn't, that doesn't, that doesn't now, in the, Jewish, in, in the days of when the Jewish country was formed, the law was also a civil law for a theocracy, right? A theocracy, theo, is just the idea of a God-led government. That's what a theocracy is. So the, the law had a, some different functions. It had health functions, dealing with, uh, you know, don't eat shellfish because we don't have epinephrine and we don't want you to die of an anaphylactic reaction, right? Uh, if you see someone puke into a wood bucket, don't ever use that bucket again. You have to throw it away, right? Those are all laws. If you, someone in your house has diarrhea and they sit somewhere, you can't sit there after they're done without washing it, right? Stuff that you and I are like, yeah, of course, because we went to preschool, right? But stuff that no Jew would ever know in the year zero or, you know, the year, you know, 1000 BC, because they don't know what a microbe is. They don't know what a virus is. They don't know what any of that stuff is. So God comes along with the law and says, here's how you don't die in the ancient world, essentially. Part of it was civil law. It was civil in the sense of like, hey, if you're out chopping wood with someone and the ax head flies off your ax and you kill the dude next to you, here's how the, the, the elders of that city are supposed to evaluate it. This is where that person has to run for safety. And then you know, that's manslaughter and that person gets to live, right? Here's, what, how they, here's how they are executed if they actually intended to kill that person. So there was civil law that was involved. And you had ceremonial law where you had like, hey, every year at this time you're going to get together and you're going to have a big feast and you're just going to be stoked in the fact that you have food. And so you're going to rejoice with me, I'm going to rejoice with you, God would say. And so you kind of have the, the religious law, the sacrifices and the feasts, right? The times of remembrance, how, how uh, sin is dealt with, these type of things. So the law, when it came in, when it, could, it could be Levitical law, it could be Mosaic law. Hey, don't covet someone else's wife. Hey, don't make an image and then worship it. Hey, make sure you're nice to people, right? Generally the law, love people and love God, right? That, I mean, that's, the law is summed up in that. That's what Jesus told us. He said the whole law and the prophets is summed up in this one idea. Love God and love people, right? So when that law was introduced, even though there was a civil aspect to it and there was an expectation that this is how you live, it was never introduced to make people righteous because it cannot do that. It cannot make a person righteous. All it can do is expose what's already inside of us, right? Like take, take this for an example. If you, uh, you know, go out working in the yard or doing your pottery or painting or whatever it is you do, and you go into the bathroom and you look in the mirror and you have you know, clay or paint or leaves or whatever it is all over your face, do you grab the mirror and wipe your face on it to clean your face? No, that wouldn't work, would it? It'd be impossible to get the dirt off. It'd be impossible to get the clay off. You go and you get soap and water. And then you look back in that mirror and you see, am I cleansed? Am I clean from this? That's all the law can do. It can condemn. In fact, in, in, uh, later on in Romans, he's going to say the law only brings wrath. That's kind of wild. You know, Jesus told us, and Paul says the same thing. Is the law bad or is it wrong? Of course not. The law is perfect. And that's why when we look at it, it reflects our sin. It causes the sin to increase. 
Paul later on is going to use an example in his covetousness. He's going to say, I didn't really know how much I coveted until the law said you shall not covet. And then it started exposing, and he used the word uh, creating, all this sin in me. So the, the whole point of the law and the introduction of the law, even when it was given to Moses at Sinai, was not to make Moses or anybody else righteous, because no one's ever been made righteous by the law. It was to govern a people and to show humanity their condemnation that was already upon them. That's what it was for. So this is really important because we can't now go back and look to it and go, I'm going to do these things the best I can to then be right with God. That's why Christ had to die. That's what Christ did. That's what the purchase is. But we'll go on from there because it gets crazy. It says there, in verse 20, the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, we have it backwards. We think, tell me if I'm wrong, we think that when sin abounds, when sin gets increases in our minds, grace decreases, right? Because that's how we treat people. If you sin against me more and more and more, I'm going to have less and less and less, right? You treat me worse and worse and worse, I'm going to get you out of my life. And I'm not saying there's not a place to have boundaries and remove toxic people out of your life. But what I am saying is that in general, we think even with God and with religion that the more sin increases, that grace decreases, he gets tired of me, he's had enough of me, I'm his promised child, and he doesn't really want anything to do with me. Isn't that, is that anybody else felt that way? But that's not what the scripture says, does it? We don't really like what it says because we're Americans and we're all about merit. But it says that where sin increases, what happened? Grace increased. And not only did it increase, it abounded over sin. And why did that happen in Christ? So that grace could reign through Christ's righteousness. What does to reign mean? Not like around here, we know that. But, but with an E? It's to have authority. It's to be the governing factor. Do we think in our lives, just, just don't answer out loud, but just in an honest moment, what reigns in your life? Is it law and condemnation and wrath of God? Or is it grace, favor that God has for you? What reigns in your life? When you come to church or when you're in your own personal prayer time, do you, do you come cowering? Just hoping that somehow you'll escape for what you've done, that somehow there'll be some sort of uh, alleviation of pressure from God? Or do you come here knowing that grace is reigning according to God? That His favor for you is how He governs His relationship with you? Because one of these ideas leads to death, condemnation, frustration, rage, anxiety. And the other of these leads to, leads to actual peace and real joy. Because as soon as we try to say that I do something, I worship on Saturday... I don't eat pork. I, whatever, it doesn't matter. I was circumcised, which might have nothing to do with, obviously anybody who's been circumcised, you did nothing to earn that, right? Your parents made a decision when you were a couple days old or on the spot, and it happened. So how could that even be a boast of righteousness? But that's what we're like. So Paul is combating this idea because it's so essential. You and I, have a standing with God because of Jesus. 
and no other reason. The law will never, it never has, and it never will make you more accepted, more right, more loved, less judged with God. Because Jesus took all of our judgment, right? That's what he did. He's going to go on. He's actually making a huge, uh, Paul here is making this kind of this really long, thought-out point. Just real quick, glance back at chapter 4, Romans 4. It says this. I'm going to jump in the middle of a thought. Forgive me for that. Hopefully I've gained some trust with you. If not, we can talk about it afterwards if you think I'm being deceptive. But in verse 15, it says this. Because the law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. So just take that thought for a second. Not just the, the, the law brings wrath. That's a conclusionary thought to his previous statements. But the second part. Where there's no law, there's no transgression. So, same instance. You're driving down some road somewhere. You're doing 150 miles an hour. You're on the Autobahn or whatever. And a, and a cop pulls you over. Right? And he says, I'm pulling you over for speeding. And you would say, why? There, there's no sign anywhere that says I can't go this fast. And he says, well, you know, I know there's no sign, but I just don't like it. Or whatever. You just say, well, that's not really how the judicial system works. You don't just get to decide what you like and don't like. It's about what the law is. And the law doesn't prohibit me from going this fast. So he can't give you a ticket, right? Where there's no law, there can't be an imputation of something done wrong because there's no law. Our entire judicial system, our entire constitution revolves around that, right? You know, whether it's the right to privacy. No, you cannot come into my home because there's no law. The law actually says you can't come into my home without a warrant. Right? No, you can't detain me. No, you can't ask for my ID. You can't, right? Because have, I haven't done anything wrong. So you can't just make something up and then prosecute me for that. It doesn't work. So you think, well, that's kind of interesting. How, how do we go? Is that really what he's saying? Well, back here in chapter 5, before we read, in verse 13, it gets even more clear. In chapter 5, verse 13, he says this, To be sure... Sin was in the world before the law was given, right? So that's, a, that's right. We have Cain killing Abel, right? You have all sorts of badness. So before the law was given, there was tons of sin, and people died because of sin is the, is the, the, the point that he's going to make. The point he's going to make is that we were still dying, even though there wasn't a law yet. But he says, to be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. That's interesting. Sin is not charged to anyone's account. Imputed is the, the, the King James word. To anyone where, where sin is not imputed where there's no law. So this is, this is getting really interesting, right? We're not going to necessarily talk about what that means for the past because I don't think we could totally come in and understand what that means for the past. But he's still making a case. So twice he says that there's not a law dictating to you what is wrong then sin is not imputed to you. Can we agree on that? Is that, is that? Can we go there? That's what it says? So there, when we get to chapter 7, he's in verse 1, he says this. I know we're skipping 6. We'll talk about it in a second. He says this. Chapter 7, verse 1. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as a person lives? Okay. 
So now we have another little piece to the puzzle. The law only applies to a person as long as that person is alive. So that we're going somewhere here, right? He's about to share an example. And we're not going to read the example. But in verse 4, he says this. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. So check it out. Now he kind of gives a, another conclusionary piece here. Where there's no law, there's no imputation of sin. Meaning sin is not deposited in your account. Then he goes on in chapter 7 to say, do you understand that, that the law can only be applied to a person who is alive? And we can agree with that, right? If you have someone who, like, who I don't know, uh, has some felony dewey where they you know, wipe someone else out, they don't grab the corpse from out of the car and go, we're taking you to trial. If the, if the, if the offender dies in the crash, right? They're dead. No trial, no justice, no nothing. They're dead. So Paul's making the same example, and he's saying, look, you died with Christ. So if I work my way backwards, if I die with Christ, and that means that I died to the law, and where there's no law, there's no imputation of sin, what does that mean for me? My sin's not deposited in my account. When? Ever. Ever. Does that mean that there's consequences for my sin on the earth? Sure. We've talked about this. If I'm a super jackwagon dad and I'm super rude to my kids and my wife, what will my family life be like? Pretty bad for them, right? It'll cost them dearly. My girls will probably grow up to think, hey, when dudes are jerks and treat me poorly, that's good. I, I don't deserve to be treated well. Right? They'll have all sorts of issues, all, all kinds of psychological issues. They'll, they'll self-loathe. There's a good chance they'll end up loathing themselves. They'll, they'll probably have low self-esteem. They'll probably marry some dude who's not the cream of the crop. Right? So my sin will have devastating effects, won't it? But it doesn't have anything to do with my salvation. Because how was I made right with God? How were you guys made right with God? Through the blood of Christ. Right? So where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. Isn't that what we're reading? So here's the point of all this. Paul and, and, and us and everybody, there's always this part of us that's just like, no, it, it, it cannot be grace. It cannot be the blood of Christ. It has to be faithfulness. Even though the scripture clearly says that we're unfaithful, he abides faithful, but we'll just discard that for a second. We're just so convinced. It can't just be that God loves me so much that he sent his son to bear all my sin. It can't just be that. There's got to be some sort of working contract in it. There's got to be some sort of like, I have to do more. There has to be some way that I earn this salvation that I get. And it's just a lie. It's a lie from our own hearts. It's a lie from Satan. It's a lie from bad Bible teaching. It's a lie. We don't have time right now to go through it, but when you look at like almost every time the word sozo, salvation, it's, it's translated different ways, sozo is. When you look at it, it's almost always in the, in the aorist passive or, all, or, or alternatively in the perfect passive in Greek. And what that means is the aorist means it was a snapshot event in time that has no anticipation of ever ending. Passive means that, it's, that, that, that 
The error passive basically means that because that event happened, it happened because some other force was acting upon it. In other words, if you got saved, you got saved. And that's continuing. And you got saved not because you did something to get saved. Romans chapter 4 is all about the fact that faith is not a work. This is the whole point of it. And if, because if faith was a work, then that means we make God a debtor. We did something, so he owes us salvation. So the other side of that, when it's the perfect passive, it's the idea that this is a completed thing that has happened in your life. And it's passive, meaning that it's the, the outside force that's, that's put upon you and the reason why it happened, what Jesus did. So why is this so important? Why, are we going, why have we spent you know, 40 minutes on just this idea? Because this decides how we live. It decides our whole life. Because if, if I'm being saved, if I'm, if I'm becoming more righteous because I have to do stuff, then that completely changed my relationship with God. Now he's a taskmaster. Now, now if I don't please him enough, then, then I'm somehow, he's, he's going to get me. Right? But I, if I believe what the scripture says, that I'm perfectly righteous because of what Jesus did, now all of a sudden, I just have a relationship with God. Now all of a sudden, I'm just interacting with the God that loves me and gave his son for me. And now I'm just experiencing and I'm just rejoicing in the, the fact that I can walk out of here and he accepts me from who I am. Is there any greater desire on the planet for any human being ever than just to be completely, nakedly accepted for who you are? Isn't that what we're trying to overcome all the time? Isn't that what we want in marriage? Isn't that what we want in, in our friendships? Isn't that what we want in our church? Is it just to be unreservedly accepted? Isn't that why high school is the scariest thing for everyone? Right? And here's Jesus saying, I did that for you. With the most important authority in the history of the universe, I made you accepted to God, regardless of your works. It's in, the gospel is incredible. It's incredible. So it makes sense why Peter would have like the showdown, right, at the OK Corral with Peter, I mean with Paul, and be like, no, 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 no. Why are you separating from the Gentiles, Peter? If anybody should know better, it's you, Peter. You literally had a double vision from God that you could hang out with these people, and it was fear that robbed him of it. It's wild. So, we're almost done, but when you, whether you decide to go to lunch or you decide to go out of this place, if you've put your trust in Jesus, know that you're fully accepted right where you're at. That He receives you and loves you. And that He's excited about you. He likes you. This nonsense that we say sometimes, like, well, we're called to love people but not like them. We, I think we take that sometimes when we apply it to God. That's why it's such a dangerous saying. Because we'll go, you know what? He loves me, but I don't think he likes me. He's contractually obligated because he sent Jesus, but I'm sure he's, 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 he's pretty disappointed in me. I'm pretty sure that he's probably about to get me. I'm pretty sure he doesn't really want to accept me. And we treat him like some half-hearted friend that's like stood us up at the movies a bunch of times. That's not who he is. So I hope that we can look at black and white. I hope we can look at the scripture. And every time Satan or my own heart or some 
well-meaning ignoramus tells me that I have to earn my standing with God, I can reject it. I can reject it and just go, that's not true. You know, the Bible tells me so. This is the truth of the scripture. He's going <clears> to <throat> go on from there. Man, there's so much more about this, and I would love to cover it. But uh, we gotta, we got to keep moving here. If you flip back over to Galatians chapter 2. I think it's noteworthy, too. I'll just give you these references if you want to look at them. But in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul's comparing the New and the Old Covenants. And in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 7, verse 11 and verse 12, 7, 11, and 12, Paul uses the same Greek word, and it's translated different ways. Um, transitory is one way it's translated. Passing away is another way it's translated. It's literally the, the Greek word for obsolete. So when something's obsolete, like if you have a car that's you know, super old, um, and you go to, like, say, the dealership to, to buy like, a water pump for it, they'll say, I'm sorry, that, that's, that part's obsolete. It means it has no purpose anymore. It has no use anymore. We don't make it anymore. right? So Paul uses that same word three times. Look it up for yourself. We don't have time to describe the law. It was, it's transitory. It's passing away. So it has a ministry. Its ministry is to condemn. That's its one ministry. Unless you're talking about when it was given to the Jews in which it also governed a nation. But all it's for today is to condemn. And we've died to it. It no longer applies to us. You're not under the law anymore. So that begs the question, does that mean that I can just go out and like covet other people's wives? And I can like make an image and worship it? And I can murder someone? Is, is it, no, it doesn't mean that. You could do those things and still be forgiven because it was all in Christ. Because there's, there's no law, there's no imputation of sin. This is the crux of the gospel. But, as an example I use of being just a, a bad dad, if I do those things, they'll have repercussions, won't they? doesn't mean I'm not forgiven by God. And again, if you, again I, I encourage you, if you look up forgiven in the English, every time it appears in Greek, it's almost always in the perfect passive. A complete and established fact that's eternal. <laughs> almost every single time. So he goes on there, and he says there in verse 17, and he's, he's, remember he's talking to Peter about a specific sin. He says there in verse 17, But if, in seeking to be, justified, uh, to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. Now this has kind of been, I wouldn't say disputed, but sometimes it's a little bit difficult in the English to understand what he's saying. What he's saying is this, but if for us, for Jews, you and me, Pete, if we're seeking to be justified in Christ, but we find ourselves not just sinners, like some translations say, we find ourselves sinners, which kind of makes it generic. It's not what he's trying to communicate. He's trying to communicate if we find ourselves also among the sinners. In other words, if we, seeking to be justified by Christ, if that means that we're just as good as Gentiles or we're lumped in with the Gentiles, does, and, and, and their call is to not obey the law, they don't have to obey the law for righteousness, does that mean that Christ is ordaining sin? Because that was a major uh, accusation of some of the, uh, the Judaizers. 
which was if you say that you don't follow the law, then you're saying that Christ is promoting sinning. And so Paul's making the point here. He's saying, look, if it, as, as Jews, if we're looking to be justified by Christ, we fall into the same lump, the same walk as the Gentiles do. Does that mean that Jesus is pr promoting sin and not obeying the law? And then he says, no, God forbid, absolutely not. He says instead, and this is fascinating, he says instead, um, oh, I lost my place. It was that exciting. Instead of verse 18, if I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. So the point that he's making here, if I go back to the law, if I rebuild what I destroyed, that actually makes me the transgressor because now I'm going against what God called me to do. And this, I mean, he just literally summarized the letter to the Hebrews here. If I try to go back to any form of righteousness outside of Christ, that's the transgression. To try to establish myself as a righteous person outside of what Jesus did for me. It's interesting because the word build here, uh, when it, in, in the New Testament, when it's connected to the law, it means to declare valid. So it's not just to, to build something like, like build something. It's, it's the idea of saying this is valid. So he says, look, if I go back and say the law is valid now, instead of, and, and when before I said that the, 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 the law has no more force, I destroyed it. It literally means to deprive of force. So if I go back to the law and say, no, this is the valid way now to the thing that I said, well, this doesn't have any force in the past because I, I'm with Christ. He goes, that's what makes me, now I'm transgressing what God has for me. Does that make sense? So anyone who would try to say I have to go back to the law, he's saying, no, 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 that's actually the transgression is trying to go back to the law, that we find our faith and our all in Christ. In verse 19, he says this. So this, kind of, this is where we're going to start answering the question, so how do I live? For through the law, I died to the law, so I might not live for God. Right? This is Romans 6, that when I put my trust in Jesus, God equated me as having died, my old nature, my sinful nature, as having died with Christ. So Christ was crucified for my sins. That's the gospel, right? That he went and he fulfilled all the old feasts, well, depending on your, your doctrine, which we won't get into, he fulfilled a big part of the Old Testament, <laughs> right? And that uh, the sin offerings, all those offerings were fulfilled in Christ, and he is my complete forgiveness, right? So if I'm, if I'm uh, making that ascension to faith, then I die with him. I was as good as dead. I, he received my penalty for my sin. And so I identify with that death. If he died, then that's what I owed, so I died, and when I died with Christ, then that I also died to the law. So if I died to the law, what does that mean about sin being deposited in my account? It doesn't happen again, does it? That's what we read in all through 4, 5, and 7. Sin is no longer deposited. Because the, the issue that we often find is this. Well, if I keep on sinning, then there's no way I could get to heaven. Number one, I'd like to meet the person who has stopped sinning. All right, first of all. Number two, and then, we, then we do this caveat. Well, I meant on purpose, like if it's rebellion. He's the, prophet, he's, he's the promised sacrifice in Isaiah 53 for rebellion. Pre-law, in, in the law, there is, no, there is no sacrifice you can offer for intentional sin, for rebellion, for iniquity. Now, there's some juggling in there a little bit because to some extent all sins are that way. 
but there were sins that were like transgressions and so forth. They're kind of different classifications in the Old Testament. Uh, there's, um, well, anyway, now I'm getting off track. The point is that what we tend to say is if you keep sinning, then you'll eventually rack up enough sin and then you won't be saved anymore. But how can I rack up sin if I've died to the law and where there's no law, there's no imputation of sin? Now I'm saying that God counts sin when he's saying he specifically does not count sin. That's a risky place to go. So now how do I live my life? What does that mean? If, if, if sin is no longer imputed to me because I'm in Christ, I've died to the law, now I can live for God because I'm set free from sin. Not only does that death mean the law no longer applies to me, it means that in, in a, as, a, as a place of righteousness, it still, it still expresses God's heart, but as a place of righteousness, or I could find righteousness, what do I do now? It, it relieves me from all of that, that I could live for God. Notice in, in chapter 7, we, re, we read it, what did it say? It, so, it said so that we could belong to another. We died with Christ to the law so we could belong to another. So we don't belong to the law anymore. And it says, by belonging to God, now we can bear fruit for God. So the law can never bear fruit. All it can do is is cause an abstinence from evil. But it can't give good. Do you guys see the difference? It's one thing if I don't kill my neighbor. That's good, right? We can all say it's good if you don't kill your neighbor, right? But you know what's better? If you love him. And the law cannot make you love someone. It can only make you not kill them. That's all it can do. And so what we're saying now is that once I am raised with Christ and the Holy Spirit is attached himself to my soul and your soul, now I have power, right? Dunamis, explosive power, where we get our word dynamite or, or dynamic. Now I have power, supernatural power from God to walk in the things that he has for me. And I'm no longer cowering from disobedience or trying to live a life of abstinence. I'm actually going the other direction now and I'm moving towards Christ. So it says here, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. My old nature and the old me is dead. Now, I understand that there's still uh, longings and urges and these things from our old nature. But Romans 6 says it's been rendered inoperative. It doesn't have power anymore. We don't have to listen to it. And he says, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In the life that I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So how do we live now? Well, we don't find the law. The law doesn't make us right with God. But the law does explain his heart, doesn't it? Well, we don't have to talk about coveting wives or murder. Just things like, hey, if you're out walking and you see your worst enemy's donkey in a ditch, by law, you have to help him get that donkey out. That's a law that probably none of us would ever vote for. But it was a law in the Old Testament for the Jews. So... I don't have to help people get their donkeys out of ditches to be righteous. But I do know, evidently, that God wants me to help everybody I can around me, right? Within reason. There's never an end of needs. So don't don't judge your ministry by how many needs are around you, because you'll die. (laughs) It can't be done. But we can minister as God leads us, right? We can walk walk with Him as He leads us. So even though now I'm not living my life according to, to, to law, now I'm living my life according to love and to relationship. You know, Matthew 5, and we'll close with this. In Matthew 5, the, uh, or I'm sorry, not 5, Matthew 9, the, um, 
some, some folks show up from the Pharisees, and they, 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 Jesus and the disciples, and they say to the disciples, they're like, hey, you know what? The Pharisees, the Sadducees, we're, we fast all the time right now. John the Baptist and his crew, they fast all the time too. So how come you guys don't fast? So they ask, they ask the disciples that, the fellas. But then Jesus replies to them. And Jesus says to them, hey, while they have the bridegroom, there's no reason for them to fast. But when the bridegroom leaves, then they'll fast. So he makes the point. He says, like, hey, while I'm here, it's all good. This is the not King James translation. It's all good. Why would they fast if I'm here with them? There's nothing going, everything's under control. It's, it's, why would they fast? Then after that, he, says, he tells them a parable. And he says, well, here, let me tell you something. He says, if you have like an old garment, right? Just imagine the kind of the man dress thing they used to wear with the belt and whatnot. He says, if you have an, if you have an old garment, if you tear it, you don't get new cloth and then sew that over the rip, right? He says, because if you do that, when you wash it and hang it out into the sun, the, the, the cotton or the camel hair or whatever you're using, it'll shrink. And if it shrinks, what happens? The patch and the garment, they rip. Something tears, right? Destruction happens, right? Then he shares another one. He says, let me give you another example, Jesus says. He says, you know what? When you ferment wine, because, you know, we're all fermenting wine at our homes. When you ferment wine, you don't take new wine when you're fermenting it and put it into an old, they used to use uh, goat leather, in, into an old wineskin. He says, because if you do that, It'll burst, right? Because when you ferment something, uh, I've heard anyway, when you ferment something, there's gas expansion, right? CO2 and different things like that come off from that. So fermentation, if you enclose fermentation in a, in a closed area, it doesn't honestly, uh, unless, you know, I mean, obviously it was steel and super strong, but anything like any enclosed area, it's going to create huge amounts of pressure, right? And so if you're fermenting wine, you get supple, soft, new goat leather, and you put it in there to ferment. And that way it can off-gas and it doesn't explode your wineskin. So Jesus is making this point to them because and, and, it's in relationship to fasting. In other words, why aren't you doing what we're doing? Why aren't you doing... In the Old Testament, there were fasts, right? There was more feasting than fasting, but in the Old Testament, there were fasts. And the fasts were generally for repentance, right? Or they were generally to seek God in some sort of crisis, those are kind of the two major factors in, in, in fasting in the Old Testament. So they come and they go, why aren't you fasting? And Jesus says, because they don't have to because I'm here. But let me tell you what I'm here for. I'm doing something completely new. He's not sticking a patch on the law. He's not trying to give Holy Spirit power to then go use for the law. Right? He says, I'm doing something completely new. The power of his Holy Spirit in a, in a life has nothing to do with law. It has to do with love and relationship. It's as if Jesus, this whole time, he's trying to bring our eyes away from just law. Just do, do, do for acceptance. Do, do, do to keep the, the heat off you. Do, do, do to make sure you're acceptable. And he's like, it's almost like, stop thinking like that. That is not Christianity. And I understand that that's been Christianity or what people have thought of Christianity from like day two, right? I mean, Galatians is what, 44 A.D.? That's, that's only 13 years, 12 years after Jesus rose from the dead, and he's already having to say, no, that's not why he rose from the dead, so you could follow the law. And so here we are today, the same message. God loves you. 
He really so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son. That whoever should believe on Him should have everlasting life. That's really why He sent Him. He really sent Him for your forgiveness and a, a perfect relationship with Him. Perfect forgiveness. Perfect acceptance in all of your glorious mess. To never fear being rejected again. To never fear being on the outside of, of the dance or outside of what's of fellowship and fun. It's never been his desire. He sent Jesus because he wants you. Not your labor, your ministry, not what you can do for him, not for just building his kingdom, because he wants you. He loves you. And when we, when we receive that, and we begin to believe that, all of a sudden, things that we see as maybe God wants me to do, maybe I should be kind to someone. Maybe, I, maybe I, I could use my gifting to be part of his kingdom. They, they legitimately don't, they're not have-tos anymore. Because you, you, when you begin to realize the love that Christ has for you, or when I begin to realize that, it, it, it's about, I want to make sure other people know this. All of a sudden, I'm not forced to go on outreach. I just, it just flows out of me. Right? I'm just at work, and someone's like, my life blows. You're like, hey, that's cool. Let me tell you why my life doesn't. Because of Jesus. It's incredible the, the motivation, the security, the peace, and just knowing the simple truth. And then moving beyond that to go, you know what? You know how I'm going to live today? I'm going to live by faith in the Son of God. In other words, I'm going to trust what He says about me and what He did at Calvary, and now I'm going to trust that what He says is good. And so when He tells me, like, hey, you know what? I probably shouldn't blast someone on social media. I'm not going to do that. Because I realize that, you know what? He can handle situations. When he tells me, hey, I, I, should, be, I should be kind to my spouse, I'm going to say, oh, you know what? Maybe right now I don't really want to, but I will. Because God says it's good. So I'm going to live by faith in Jesus. That's what we're doing today. Right? No condemnation in that. No trying to get you in that. Just great, great stuff. So anyway, forgive me, it's 12.07. We just, I was just trying to give more time to the kitchen. It really had nothing else to do with anything. <laughs> You guys are kind and patient. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your great kindness to us and your great love and your great forgiveness. Lord, I pray that you would uh, continue to speak to our hearts, bring conviction. Lord, when we're, we're not walking in love and we're just kind of expressing self and letting our own fallen nature rule our souls, I pray, Lord, that you would reveal that to us. That we'd be swift to repent, to turn from those things. Lord, I pray we walk out of here in peace and in joy, uh, knowing that there's no imputation of sin to us, that you haven't deposited our sin in our account, our account anymore. Thank you for the, the, the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus. Thank you for the blood shed um, from the crown of thorns, from the praetorium to the walk to Golgotha. Lord, thank you for that precious blood. And thank you for the, the infinite forgiveness. And Lord, thanks for food and providing for us. Thanks for fellowship. You're just really good, and we appreciate it. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. If anybody like prayer, we'll be up here. We'd be glad to pray with you.